The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. And uh, in your scriptures, Isaiah chapter number 50 might want to have uh, Matthew 21 handy. We'll get to there eventually. Isaiah chapter number 50. Thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement whom I have put away or which of my creditors is to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I came, there was no man. When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all, that it cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? Verse number 10 who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that ye have kindled. This shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. The word of the Lord. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. May we sit up, pay attention, gauge in heart and mind the work that the Spirit now has been doing and is presently doing so that we might be in step with the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. In uh, chapter, in Isaiah 50, in verse number 10, the prophet asks the question, Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? That is 100% a question for the contemporary church, it is a question for us this morning. As the events of this last week in Nashville and the subsequent response from the highest office of this land demonstrated, there is a deepening darkness. A deepening darkness. So this question posed to Israel that was in great darkness and walking in great darkness is 100% for us this morning. Who is among you, Durkee Town, that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? But then the, the prophet sets up a contrast 
As in verse number 11, he points to the people who are doomed, that are going to lie down in sorrow. And they are doomed because, to quote the commentator J. Alec Mortier, they have dealt with life's darkness by a do-it-yourself remedy. Do-it-yourself is all over the TV today, isn't it? All over the internet. You don't need a professional. Here's how you can what? Do it yourself. YouTube or whatever tube. You can do it yourself. And what we'll find in the sermon today, and I hope each night this week, is a clear path to Jesus because he is the one who, although walked among people entrenched in spiritual darkness, trusted and stayed upon his God. And by looking at Jesus, we then will be challenged to holy trust in him so that we too can have light even though death and darkness surround us. When we came out of Advent and celebrated the coming of Jesus, we titled the series, Looking at the Light. As we entered into the darker season of Lent, we have tried to create a longing in your heart for light. Now coming to the edge and end of the Lenten season during Holy Week, we are reminded that in order for us to have life and light, someone had to go into the depth of the darkness. Someone had to go into the abyss, the place that the Apostle Paul calls the dominion of death. And when Jesus then enters into Jerusalem, he enters as an invading force that is going to war against the dominion of death. And I, I would really encourage us, as we gather each night this week, to read the events of Holy Week, and certainly this is how I am going to present it, to present and read the events of Holy Week through the lens of a king who is taking the fight directly to the stronghold of the enemy. Jesus is no victim. He is a king taking the fight directly into the stronghold of the enemy. The stronghold is located, as we will see and perhaps already can um, understand, it's, it's located in the hardened hearts of the Jewish people who are steeped in their religious practice. The stronghold is the godless systems of power represented by Pilate, the Jewish leadership, and, of course, the corrupt practices in the temple. That stronghold then also, and maybe for some in this room, surprisingly, the stronghold is located in what the poet John Heath Stubbs calls the center of the polluted heart of man. Because as Heath Stubbs wrote, Jesus identifies with us not in our carefully presented surfaces, but in our polluted hearts. And if there is an, a prevailing reason why people prefer the do-it-yourself 
method to answer their spiritual questions and needs. It's because they will not admit that their heart is polluted, desperately wicked, and that even their religious practices, whatever those practices might be, are not sufficient to do what the prophet said to make Although your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as... So you're reluctant to say the word because it's spring and you don't even want to think that that could happen again. They will be white as... Snow. By the time we get to Friday of this coming week, what we will find is the scene, though, not only of crucifixion, but of new creation. And I love that insight by Malcolm Geith because for many evangelicals like myself and this church for certain, the cross of Jesus often is unnecessarily condensed into only forgiveness for sins. If you ask most people in this church what is the meaning of the cross, the first answer and perhaps the only answer they will give is forgiveness for sins. They would struggle to get to understand the other thing that the cross did, and that was to defeat the power of sin, the power of death, the power of darkness. We must keep in mind that Jesus is indeed making all things new, even as he goes into the dominion of death. And overwhelms it with his own life and power. If indeed he is making all things new, then each and every day we have a decision to make. Will we live in the newness of his creation? Will we, instead of choosing our own do-it-yourself remedies, will we, like Jesus, trust in the one who, although walked in time of gross darkness, trusted fully in the name of the Lord and stayed faithful to his God. Will we trust the Lord, even though the darkness is great around us? So in large measure, the ball is squarely in our court. And we must take it with all seriousness. Because if we don't take this seriously, then our very souls would be at risk. That was the point of the last number of Wednesday evening reflections that Israel, although delivered out of Egypt, had a hardened heart against God and did not find their rest. And so it is for many in the church today. The heart grows cold and the heart grows hardened means we are doomed by our do-it-ourself remedies. But you know, not only are our own souls at risk, but the souls of some 3,000 people within our reach, their souls are at risk as well. So our situation that is much like the one Jesus encountered and certainly the prophet wrote about 
I didn't read it. I'm going to read it now. In verses 4 through 9 of Isaiah 50, we have what is uh, the third of the servant songs of Isaiah. And as a song, it outlines for us the relationship between the suffering servant and his determination to obey. But there's a prelude to the song, and it's in the question that I did read in verse number 2. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? That answer to that question is then given, let me pick up the reading in verse number 4, the Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear and I was not rebellious. Neither turned away my back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting for the Lord God will help me therefore I will not be confounded therefore have I set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed he that is near justifieth me who will contend with me let us stand together who is my adversary Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they shall all wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. (coughs) Excuse me. If you read those words and you conclude anything other than Jesus Christ... We should have a conversation. Not because maybe you haven't been schooled in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament of Isaiah, but perhaps it's because you've never met Jesus Christ. Those words do not ring with familiarity about the suffering servant, and I really would love to have a conversation with you because they point us to Jesus. The servant identified in the song is also the man who answers the call, which means that because he is the man who answers the call, we know that God's hand is not shortened at all, that it in fact does redeem and that he has power to deliver. So if we pull Isaiah 50 forward and we drop it into Matthew 21, what we find is the fulfillment of the song. I told you we'd get there eventually. Go to Matthew chapter 21. <coughs> and let me read just uh, the part where Matthew is quoting the prophet Zechariah in verse number 4, the instructions that Jesus had given to his disciples and everything that unfolds And verse 4 is a fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek, and sitting upon an ass, 
and a colt, the foal of an ass. I told you some months ago I'm using the King James Version because of certain words that I believe are good words that the other translations uh, translate slightly different. <clears throat> it's the word meek that should grab our attention. Your translation probably uses humble, if you're using the ESV or the NASB. And that's fine. But in my, in my opinion, I was going to say in my humble opinion, humble uh, really doesn't quite capture the force of what's happening. It, it has a rather ubiquitous ring to it. And we should note that in the original Greek language that Matthew uses the word translated meek three times. The other gospel writers don't use it at all. That should tell us something. In the Beatitudes, who is it that inherits the earth? The meek. They are the blessed ones. Jesus uses the word meek to describe himself as he invites the people to take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly and hard, and you will find rest for your souls. And to the modern ear, it sounds utterly foolish to say that the person who comes to bear the strong arm of God's salvation, who enters into the dominion of death, would be self-described as meek. Well, that's because we don't really understand the meaning of the word. To be meek is not to be weak. In fact, the word has very little to do with one's outward behavior. The meaning of the word is what was pictured by Isaiah in the third servant song and one commentator defines it as an inwrought grace of the soul and the exercises of it as first and chiefly towards God. It is a temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. This is why we can pull all the servant songs, but especially 50, into the events of Palm Sunday, because the one who is willing to give his back uh, to the smiters and have his beard plucked out is the one who has an inwrought grace of the soul that is exercised first and chiefly towards God, that his spirit internally is tempered to such a degree that he accepts as good without disputing or resisting the way that God has dealt with him. <clears throat> you need to keep that definition in mind and then re-ask the question that God raises in Isaiah 50 verse 2. Who is the man? Who is the one? And then in the description given in the servant song in 4 through 9, who is the man that now answers the call? Again, who could it possibly be except Jesus? <clears throat> and if you pull all of this together, 
and you drop it right in the midst of the loud, boisterous, celebratory context of a parade where people are shouting his name, invoking the blessing of Psalm 118, celebrating all of his accomplishments, you find out that two things are taking place as Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem. When the meek king rides in, first, the unseen and yet vitally important focus on the Father's will is taking place. The inwrought grace that has filled the soul of Jesus will not be drawn away from love and obedience to his Father regardless of what the crowds are doing, regardless of what the crowds are saying. How long does it take you to forget a compliment? What if you were set in the middle of the room and everybody surrounded you and waved their palm branches at you and hailed you for all of the wonderful things that you've done? How long would it take you to forget it? Or not to be drawn into whatever they desire. So first, it's very important to see that Jesus, through the inwrought grace of his soul, now exercising it first and chiefly towards God, is what gets him then to Friday. Where he defeats the power and dominion of death. While at the same time, a resistance to the evil and the darkness that surrounds him. Because in many ways, the temptation to be withdrawn or drawn into the will of the people has to be overcome. He is resisting everything that he sees around him while he is actively engaging in giving himself to the will of his father. And both things, by the way, are what discipleship is about. Actively engaging the Father while we resist the darkness around us. And by doing this, Jesus redefines not only the meaning of power, but what it means to be fully devoted. And he does this as he comes into the city meek, seated upon an ass. And then if you follow Matthew's telling of the events from chapter 21 all the way through chapter number 27, what you find is that the people are initially receptive to Jesus. What do we read there at the end of the account? Um, it says, when he comes into Jerusalem, verse 10, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? And the multitude answers, it's Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth, of Galilee. But we also know something else, which is why we have to hold Isaiah 50 closely this week as we walk with Jesus to his cross. We know the crowds will turn on him, and they will turn on him when Judas arrives to betray but where is Jesus to be found? Among the olive trees in Gethsemane. And what is Jesus doing in the darkness of the night, 
He is acting out Isaiah 50. His ears are open. He is not turning away from the Lord his God. He is willing now to give his back to the smiters, his cheek to those who plucked off the hair. He does not hide his face from shame and spitting. And this kind of strength that resists evil flows then out of a heart of meekness shaped and forged by a massive inwrought work of grace. And it is this strength that allows Jesus to set his face like a flint and know that he will not be put to shame even though he is going to be cut off and rejected by everyone. Which is why we look to him for our salvation. Why would you look to anyone else? Why why conjure up some do-it-yourself plan? Youth, I mean, and I know there are people who, first of all, they deny the existence of evil. Fine, okay. That's, that's another sermon another time. But there are those, actually, who believe that they can overcome evil like they've learned to change the oil in their car or wallpaper their wall. I don't know if people wallpaper anymore, but, you know, they got on YouTube and, oh, I can come up with a way to overcome the dominion of death. The thing that has taken down every single human being since Adam. And you've come up a way to overcome it. Congratulations. I mean, why wouldn't you follow Jesus? Why wouldn't you? Right? We have to be honest. Are we like the ones in Isaiah 50 trying to walk in the light of our own candle? Are you trying to deal with life's darkness by a do-it-yourself remedy or are you turning by faith to Jesus. Let me say it again. Are you trying to deal with life's darkness by a do-it-yourself remedy, or are you by faith turning to Jesus? We can never save ourselves. Salvation must always come from outside of us. It must come from God and then by grace to us. Are you ready to receive him? Or will you, like the people that cut him off and cut him out of their life, also lie down in sorrow on the day of judgment? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word and I pray that this might be um, an encouragement to um, not only deal with the realities in front of us at this very moment, but to make every effort and to endeavor to come each night this week to be challenged more deeply into what does it mean to walk with Jesus, the one who was cut off from the land of the living. We'll use a few moments of quietness to reflect on these things, to confess sins, prepare our heart. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. 
For more information about Durkee Town, please visit our website at www.durkeetown.org.